Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. So often we hear scripture in translation and assume a meaning for its words based on how we use those words in our modern language. When we do this, we make three mistakes. First, we forget that the way words are used can change over time. Second, we disregard the problem of translation. Third, and most importantly, we ignore the author's use of the term which may part ways even with the way that word is understood in his historical context. In scripture, to understand a word you have to look at its usage throughout the text. Fortunately, in the case of the term worthy, Matthew leaves plenty of breadcrumbs. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 11 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 281 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I remember many teachers over the years challenging me. Mr. Bulos, when you write a paper and you use a new word or you use an old word in a specific way, you are responsible to define your terminology so that the reader can understand what it is you're trying to say. That's true of modern writing. It's also true of scripture. But in the case of the biblical genre, these writers take the liberty of defining their words in the flow of the narrative, in the way the words are used over and over and over again. And we come upon one such word today, Richard, and that word is worthy. Right. In Greek, axios, John the Baptist in Matthew 3 says, bring forth fruits worthy for repentance. Don't bring forth fruit that's not of repentance, of something else, because if we're here for repentance, what's the point of bringing other kinds of fruit? In chapter 10, verse 10, the workman is worthy of his meat. It doesn't mean whether he's a good person or not, and therefore you give him his money. It means he came, he did the work, he showed up. In Matthew 22, 8, the wedding is ready, but those who are called were not worthy. It doesn't mean that they weren't good people and they shouldn't have been invited or they show that they're wicked. It doesn't say wicked. It doesn't say righteous. It doesn't say unrighteous. It says they're not worthy, meaning I gave them the invitation and they decided not to show up. Are they worthy? No, they're not worthy. They're not worth the time. It's too bad. You know, you've only got so many seats at the table and you wasted some of your invitations on people who weren't interested in coming. Who is interested in the teaching? Who is worth spending time teaching that doesn't have to do with intelligence, it doesn't have to do with goodness, will you come to all the classes? I don't want to teach you and then have you not show up and then you come and then I have to waste time catching you up 
so that you can be at the level of the class because it wastes the class time. You're worthy of the class if you're willing to show up and be there when you need to be there to uphold your part of the bargain. It's not a matter of judgment. He's not going to say, be gone for me, wicked and faithless servant. Worthy means whether they're worth the time. Have they shown that they're worth spending time on? And it's not vikiosini, righteous or judged righteous. It's not a matter of judging. It's just whether it's worth the time. You know, if you are trying to teach a piano student piano and the piano student doesn't want to practice and doesn't want to learn how to read music and wants the teacher to do everything for them, the teacher would be correct in saying, you know, I can't teach you. You're not teachable. Like, you're not worth my time. You're taking up the time of someone who actually wants to learn piano. So why don't you get off the bench and go, you know, play video games or something. But for me, it's not worth my time teaching you piano. Does it mean they're a bad person? Does it mean I hate them? No. It means that you're wasting your time if your job is teaching piano. And this is how, for our listeners who happen to be Eastern Orthodox, this is how you should understand the ordination of a priest when the bishop shouts to the assembly, Oxios, and the assembly replies, Oxios, you're not evaluating the righteousness or the purity of the one standing as candidate for the priesthood. You are proclaiming worthy in this sense that the one who teaches the gospel is worthy of the support the gospel provides, that the one who is willing to study the gospel, who is ready to study the gospel, is worthy in the sense that they're willing and therefore teachable. This is how we have to understand this expression, oxios, in Greek. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. Now, Richard, with the definition that you laid out so beautifully with those examples, it becomes very clear in verse 11 that the question they are to examine or to inquire of is, are there students in any of these homes that are willing to learn? Exactly. Worthy is, like I said, not a moral judgment. It's, is there someone who's worth my time? The disciples like Jesus, have a limited time to teach. Is there anyone here who's worth my time? When we hear worthy, you got to think worth it. Are they worth the time to put into them so that they can learn? I'm not going to take up a spot with someone who doesn't want to learn. I'll find someone who wants to learn and put them in that spot. And then you go and live at their house. Why do you live at their house? Because you want to teach them as much as you can, as quickly as you can, before you have to move on. You want to make sure that you are wringing every drop out of every minute because the time is short. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. When you sit at the table fellowship and read scripture, scripture establishes peace because it puts everything in order keeps everyone under control the way a father sitting at the head of the table keeps his children at peace if they're willing to learn then give them the blessing of the teaching which will give them peace but if they're not willing to learn don't give them that blessing because it's not going to provide peace because they're going to reject it and sometimes people think this is like a matter of ego like are they rejecting you? Are they rejecting the gospel? No, they're not interested. 
you're the Jehovah's Witness knocking on the door, and they say, no, thank you, and they leave the door shut. The Jehovah's Witness isn't going to keep pounding on the door until you open it up again. They go on to the next house. Again, it's not a judgment whether you're righteous. It's saying, okay, I have to get this many houses in today. I need to keep moving. When they reject your peace, you don't shake them off. You just move. The judgment is for God to take care of. He's the judge. You're not the judge. You're simply the messenger. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. I like this metaphor because it implies movement. You're shaking the dust off because you got to keep going. You're going to move forward. You don't want anything to hold you back. It's not that you are, as you said, looking down your nose at those who aren't worthy as though you're giving some sort of moral judgment. We want to keep saying that because the modern English usage of the term can be confusing. Forget how we use worthy. Remember, at the outset of the podcast, you have to submit to the way that Matthew defines the term worthy. And in this sense, you have no right to try to teach someone who doesn't want to be taught. You're not judging them. In a way, you're giving respect. Because if someone doesn't want something, why should you shove it down their throat? And why should you sit there and wallow in the fact that they're not accepting it? Shake the dust off your feet and get busy. I love that image, too, of shaking off your feet because you don't leave any remnant of them. You don't give them any more thought. You don't think, oh, I should have said this. I could have said that. Maybe if I had said this, it would have convinced them. No, you shake off any remnant of them off of you so that, as you said, Father, you can move. You do not wallow. You do not mutter. You just keep moving. Now, the fact that you can't impose it on them and it's fine if they don't accept it doesn't mean it's fine for them because it's the teaching that provides peace. So if you don't accept that teaching, you will experience a deficit of peace. You will not have received the blessing of peace. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So you can reject God as your king. You can reject the blessing of peace. You have every right. Nothing can be imposed on you. But who would reject peace in favor of war? Sadly, many people would reject peace in favor of war, and the proposition of Scripture is that that's why it will be intolerable for them on the Day of Judgment when the bombs fall. It's poignant that this is Sodom and Gomorrah as well, because Sodom and Gomorrah are precisely the ones who are the enemies of Abraham's nephew, and they are the ones that were destroyed at the exclusion of Abraham's family. This is the ultimate judgment in Genesis that came as a result of a lack of hospitality. They were not interested in hearing the visitor, and they abused the visitor, and as the visitor left, that's when the judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, so that they would be completely wiped off the face of the earth with fire and brimstone. Like you said, Father, it's not the disciples to judge, but there is a judgment that will be coming. The disciples are not allowed to dwell on that. Uh, one of the things I think is important about this verse is that that judgment is going to come, not from you, but it will come. So it's not up to you to decide. It's not up to you to control. It's not up to you to patrol how the judgment, when the judgment comes. That's up to God. Your job is simply to teach. 
You're the watchman, you warn, and then you move. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 16 is kind of like a collection of God's greatest metaphors in the Bible. So they are sheep being sent out and they are being put at risk. It's a very interesting metaphor. He's sending them out among the wolves. So he wants them to be as clever as the Nahash in Genesis, but as innocent as the dove, which represents the spirit of God. So you've got to have a kind of worldly cleverness about you, a worldly roughness to your intellect in the way that you deal with people and the way that you strategize, but you are not allowed to do harm and you yourself have to be as vulnerable as a sheep. Right. They are in worldly terms, very vulnerable, like a sheep, like a dove, with no natural defenses. And this was at the beginning of this section where Jesus said they're not allowed to take anything to take care of themselves. They put themselves out there as vulnerable. They put themselves out there as unable to protect themselves. But they're still required to be shrewd. And the shrewdness is to figure out how they're going to continue to teach not how they're going to take care of themselves. They have to figure out how they're going to teach and they take care of themselves only insofar as it will further the teaching because anything more than that is the gold and silver in your sack, which you're not allowed to bring along. They have to survive the way that Paul survived just long enough to deliver the gospel to Rome before he met his death. That's the key. Your job is to survive long enough to make sure that you accomplish the mission. After that, it doesn't matter what happens to you. didn't matter in the end. I mean, Jesus himself accomplished his mission, and his life was lost. So you have to be shrewd in that sense. What do you have to do to get through this in order to accomplish the mission without doing harm? Because if you're not faithful to the teaching, then the mission is aborted. So the ends in Scripture justify the means so long as you don't transgress the commandment to love the other. If you transgress that commandment, then all bets are off. But as long as you remain faithful to that commandment, anything goes. That's the idea. And remember that their job is to bring peace. As they come into a house, they offer them peace. But they're going to be as sheep among wolves. They're going to be among those who want to devour them, who want to cause violence to them, but they're not allowed to cause violence to others. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in your synagogues. And verse 17, again, calls to mind the shame of the Apostle Paul, who once persecuted the church. He was the leader of those who handed them over to the courts and scourge them in the synagogue. And it's interesting that it's scourging them in the synagogue. So the place where the word is supposed to be taught is precisely the place where they're going to be shamed and punished. They have to continue to teach, even though in the place of teaching, they're shamed and rejected in this violent way among not just religious leaders, but also among secular leaders. Their job is to continue to teach they're not allowed to take care of themselves. They're also not allowed to protect themselves in these cases where they're being shamed and rejected. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And so here you have it. There's this hint 
that although in the beginning you are to take the message to the Jews, ultimately the message is for both communities, and it's one message in Matthew. It's an unfortunate consequence of translation that we have in English this false notion of there being two Gospels, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. It's not so. There is one Gospel to both communities. And so in your delivering of the Gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, you will be brought into the synagogues and brought before governors and kings to bear witness to this teaching. And when you do that, it will be a witness to the Gentiles. So there you have it in verse 18. I like how he tosses in here, for my sake, because he has to remind the disciples that it's still not about you. It might feel like it's about you when you're being shamed and punished, but it's still not about you. You're doing it on behalf of Jesus, your teacher. So you continue to teach no matter what the circumstances for the sake of the one who taught you. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. And this pulls together the theme of the first part of the chapter. You don't have to take anything for the journey. Just memorize Galatians, memorize the Gospel of Matthew, memorize Deuteronomy, memorize Genesis. If you only bring this instruction with you, this instruction, which is written on your heart, will teach you what to say. You'll know which passage to speak when you're standing before the kings. You will know what to say. It comes from faithful study. And only those who are worthy are committed to faithful study. Only those who are worthy in a Matthaean sense, that is to say, those who are teachable and who are hungry and who thirst after righteousness. The most terrifying thing I find in this verse, Father, is that you have to know this scripture, you have to know this teaching, you have to know this word so well. That's first terrifying. The second thing that's terrifying is that you are not allowed to stop teaching it no matter what. Even if you are in court, even if you're being punished, even if you're being scourged, you are not allowed to give up your teaching for one moment. There isn't time, and so your bodily harm is even less important than the imperative to continue to teach. Because it's not yours. We keep saying this. It's not yours. When Jesus says, for my sake, it means for the sake of the teaching that he is going to give his life for because it's not Jesus who speaks, and it's certainly not the apostles who speak, for, as Matthew says, it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, and I hasten to add, Richard, he speaks in you only if you've memorized Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Genesis. Otherwise, it won't work. You have to allow the text of his instruction. That's the Spirit at work in you. You have to allow that text to take center stage when you have the keros in the king's court. And the testimony that you're bringing in verse 18 to them and to the Gentiles is this very word, the word that comes from the Spirit of God because you learned the text, you learned the teaching by heart. And the testimony is precisely that this teaching is more important than anything, that conveying this teaching is more important than anything, that you recognize a single authority, and that's God, a single kingdom, and that's the kingdom of heaven. And that's your testimony to them and to 
the nations and to the Gentiles, depending on how you translate that. The word that comes from God's spirit, which is the word of this text, and your willingness to submit to it in not any, but every circumstance, is the testimony that they will see when you continue to teach, even when you're being punished or being tried. The question that this short section in Matthew poses for all of us as it draws our attention to Matthew's usage of the term oxios, worthy, the question each of us have to grapple with walking away from this episode is what worthiness means in the biblical sense and to examine our conscience whether or not we are worthy of biblical study. Are we committed to it? Are we seeking it out? Are we as hungry as students as we are as teachers? Because if you're a hungry student, when you teach, it won't be your words that you speak. It will be the words of the teaching. If you're not a hungry student and you stand up to teach, then you are unworthy of teaching. And the one who is unworthy of teaching, when they speak, gives their own human words, their own opinions. They give you a line of baloney. This is really important. And this is how you have to understand the exclamation oxios at the ordination. Is the one standing there a hungry student who wants to learn scripture so that they can in turn speak, but allow the spirit of the father to speak through his instruction and disallow themselves to speak? That's the question. And it doesn't just apply to clergy. It applies to everyone who's been baptized and everyone who claims to take this teaching seriously. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.